Welcome to a Neon Jazz interview with a piano prodigy, jazz star, and a musician with a very intriguing biography, Mr. Fred Hirsch. From the streets of Cincinnati, Ohio, he has since moved on to New York City to become one of the most sought-after jazz pianists going these days. After surviving a coma in 2008, he has gone on to make a new production that is getting rave reviews called My Coma Dreams, a jazz theater production. His latest album called Floating, produced with his trio, is exceptional, and it's up for two Grammy Awards in 2014. Fred is full of stories and plenty of cool insights. Please dig this interview, my friends. Hi, Joe. How are you? Good, thanks, thanks. Great. First of all, I'm going to start off with the show that you just had here in Kansas City at the Folly. How was that show? It was really nice. I mean, you know, I'm not sure if we met the attendance uh, requirements, but it was a night when there, it was like a first Friday, and I think there was a, a, a baseball game in town. I mean, there was a lot going on, so just luck of the draw that particular night, but we had a really nice concert. Yeah, Kansas City was kind of a crazy place in October with the baseball, that's for sure. So, right. I just got your album floating with you and the trio. Beautiful album. Um, yeah, it's up for two Grammys this year. Man, this is a beautiful listen. You've had, you have a lot going on, and you also have the uh, Coma Dreams. And that's a big question for me to digest, because that's a pretty heavy moment to live through, I would imagine. Uh, what did that experience do to shape who you are this very day? Well, I think, you know, when you uh, are that close to death, um, you know, and two months of your life is just gone, and, you know, things that you could do before you went into your coma, you can't do anymore. You can't swallow, you can't play the piano, you can't eat, you can't talk. Um, I had my right vocal cord was permanently paralyzed uh, when the tube was put down uh, my windpipe to save my life. Um, you know, it, it, well, I mean, it's humbling, of course, but it's also, um, you learn not to kind of, as they say, sweat the small stuff. You know, when I, um, you know, uh, I think in my playing, I'm, kind of swinging for the fences a lot more, not that I've ever been that, you know, controlling of a player, but uh, these days, you know, uh, I tend to just sort, sort of let it fly right. a lot more. But I think part of that is, you know, I'm going to be 60 next year. I've been doing this professionally now for more than 40 years, and you just develop a certain, you know, level of, of wisdom and experience uh, and trust uh, where you just kind of, uh, you know, uh, are able to just be in the moment and, and deal with whatever happens musically. So how did you get the strength and that vitriol to get to a point where you could play piano and function the way that you did before? What was it that you did? What did you go through to get back to that point? Well, um, you, you know, as I said, when I came out, I was so weak I couldn't the pillow on the bed. I mean, I was really that helpless for some time. But um, this was in the summer of 2008, and uh, I was in the coma from mid-June to mid-August. 
came home from the hospital after a month in rehab. And uh, in October of 2008, I had another pneumonia, not as severe as the first one. And I was back in the ICU uh, for a week or so. And I got out on a Saturday morning. Uh, and on that Monday night, two nights later, I played a set of Smalls in New York. Yeah. And, you know, it was certainly not the best playing I've ever done. But I kind of wanted to just get back on the horse as soon as possible. I'm, I'm a tennis follower, and I remember the great tennis player Monica Sellers, who got stabbed on the court uh, with a knife by a deranged fan of her rival, Steffi Graf. And it took her two and a half years to feel safe on a tennis court. And in the meantime, she completely lost her mojo right. and was never the same killer, you know, player that she was before. And I thought, you know, I'm not going to wait around for the perfect moment to perform again. Uh, I'm just going to see what, if I can do it. And then by the January after that, I was leading a quintet at the Vanguard for a week and well on the road to recovery. Right on. So... What came out of this was the 2011 production of My Coma Dreams, which I had the chance to watch, and it's a beautiful production. How did that, how quickly after you got out did you think you were going to do something? How did this kind of all become? Well, um, in September, October, after I came out of the coma, I mean, well, immediately after coming out of the coma, I recalled a series of about eight or ten dreams. And I'm a person that, you know, wakes up in the morning, if I had a dream, you know, maybe I'll remember one name or one scene, but I don't remember dreams in their entirety. The fact that I retain these dreams with all their detail, the smells, the sounds, the feeling, was very significant. And at whatever point, maybe October or something, when I had enough, you know, motor coordination to type them into a uh, my computer, I did that, and I just sort of sat with them, and I don't know, maybe it was a year or so later that I talked to my friend, uh, Herschel Garfine, who's a wonderful librettist, director, writer, uh, composer, and I said, look, Herschel, I, I have these dreams, I feel like I went through this terrible, terrible ordeal, and this is what, what I have left, and I want to do something with them, and I don't want to just do an instrumental suite where people would read the stories about the dreams in the program notes. And I don't want to do something with too much visuals because then the music becomes like an accompaniment to a silent movie. But I think there's some way to do something with these dreams. And he just took the paper away and then a few weeks later came back with this idea of making this piece uh, follow the timeline from the time that I went in the coma till me beginning my rehab. And, um, I mean, I won't spoil it for people. Um, am I allowed to give a, a uh, URL on the air? Absolutely. Well, the, 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 the DVD, uh, which has gotten incredible press and the Times, Downbeat, Boston Globe, uh, is available to benefit Treatment Action Group, uh, which is the organization that my partner works at, and they're a, uh, an activist. 
activist kind of think tank group uh, that works with uh, AIDS, uh, hepatitis C, and tuberculosis worldwide to uh, help get access to treatment and get drugs out there faster. So if you want to buy it from them, you can go to www.treatmentactiongroup.org. And uh, for every DVD you buy, they get, you know, the lion's share of the cost. Um, so that's they're also available on Amazon if you're more comfortable with that. Right on. So I'm going to go ahead and kind of switch to the beginning of your life here. And you, you come from the streets of Cincinnati, Ohio. What was it about Cincinnati that kind of fostered this love of jazz that you're that, that you have today? Well, that's a that's a good question. I was just talking with one of my musician friends back there yesterday, and kind of reminiscing. Um, went away to college as a freshman, you know, having been kind of a piano jock in high school, and dabbled with jazz, but not in any real way. I mean, I always liked to improvise since I was a child. It was much more fun than practicing. Uh, but, you know, I really basically stepped into a jazz club in the during the Christmas break of my freshman year at college in Iowa, which is actually where Herbie Hancock went. And uh, um, I just, I loved kind of the social milieu of jazz. I loved the musicians and the Everybody seemed to have personalities. Uh, they were a little kooky. Um, they were definitely people that my parents would not approve of me hanging out with, a lot of them. Yeah. Uh, and I just loved the fact that jazz at that time was this kind of underground music. Um, you know, I didn't take lessons. I kind of figured things out for myself. There was never any music on the bandstand. Nobody had... A, anything resembling a fake book or a real book. You know, you just sort of had to learn the tunes, uh, sometimes on the bandstand, and be able to play. And there were some really fine local musicians in Cincinnati who were very kind to me. Because, you know, in those days, young people who were interested in jazz, there weren't that many of us. Mm -hmm. And even when I moved to New York at 21, you know, I had a very advanced skill set for somebody my age. I knew tons of tunes. I could play lots of styles. I read well. Uh, I could accompany. I could do arrangements for singers. You know, uh, and now, of course, kids are crawling out of conservatories uh, and have jazz studies programs all over the world. It's a whole different thing. But back then, I was a little bit more of a novelty, actually. Um, and so I got established really quickly, you know, playing as a sideman with, you know, Joe Henderson and Art Farmer and Stan Getz and doing gigs with Charlie Hayden and Sam Jones. And, uh, you know, and I really went through a, a serious apprenticeship phase in my 20s that a lot of young musicians don't have the opportunity to uh, have. Absolutely. So... You're, you you started out on the keys at four. You were composing by eight and in competitions by ten. Is it safe to say that you were a prodigy that was just destined to be at the piano? Yes, I would say so. But I knew that I was not destined to be a concert pianist. I knew that I didn't have the kind of discipline required to spend hours and hours, you know, practicing Chopin etudes and 
memorizing big pieces. I knew that wasn't my path. Um, and it never occurred to me that I could be a composer. I guess that option never really surfaced, even though I studied composition in elementary school. Uh, uh, so, you know, really jazz brought together my love of uh, improvising, my love of harmony, and the fact that it's music that you play with people and in front of people usually. And, you know, classical music for me was usually practicing alone. Uh, and so just the fact that it was a group music in a very interesting social uh, situation really drew me into it. Right on. How would you define your jazz style? If you had to just kind of hammer it down to this is the kind of jazz style I play, and what do you think it would be? Well, I would sort of hate to do that because, honestly, you know, I, I pretty much am responsive to whatever is going around, going on around me. I mean, I play with, in situations where there's, it's totally open improvisations, I love to play standards and ballads and love tunes, I compose a lot of my own material, I play duos with, I do play duos with so many different uh, people uh, throughout the year, and, and I'm always open to getting into their world. So, you know, uh, I can't really say, I mean, I think features of my playing that people tell me that they look to uh, or that they can tell that it's me on a recording, uh, that my touch and sound particularly, and uh, my very active left hand, my use of counterpoint, um, hopefully, you know, the level of taste uh, with, with, with which I try to do things. But it's kind of hard to talk about exactly what I do, because I do a lot of different things. Right, absolutely. So, you said you arrived in New York City at 21, and, you know, you, you mentioned you played with Art Farmer and Stan Getz and these guys. In the beginning, when you were playing with these guys, did it just blow your top to be around such talented, journeyed individuals? Did you learn quite a bit from them? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, some of them talked about it, you know, were more talkers than others, you know, like Joe in particular. You know, he didn't, we never, we hardly ever talked about music in the 10 years off and on that I played with him. You know, but I learned by example, and uh, from Art Farmer, I learned a lot about you know how to lead a band and how to develop a book of music and how to pace a set. They all were very kind in teaching me things about negotiating the business. You know, I just, I mean, from Sam Jones, I mean, what, I mean, he was like the perfect jazz bass player in terms of time and that tradition and uh, just being able to play with him really honed my sense of what swing is. Um, so, I mean, people communicated in different ways, not always by what they said, but just by how they played and how they went about their career. So you've had a very, very long career through the 80s, through the 90s, through the 2000s. Is there a particular period of time that you think, man, I really grew a tremendous amount during that time period? I got my first major label. I made my first album at around 30, which is also around the time that I was diagnosed with HIV/AIDS. Um, I got my first major record deal with None Such in my late 30s, almost 40. I think 
starting in 2001, I started to, you know, really, really kind of come in to my own even more, uh, even though I think the records I did for None Such were really strong projects. Uh, but I think after the coma, you know, and especially with my current trio of John Bear on bass and Eric McPherson on drums, I think this period has actually been, in terms of my playing, the best period so far. I feel like I'm just scratching the surface now, and I'll be 60 next year. Um, and I never expected to live to be 40, so, you know, I'm really, uh, you know, uh, grateful and, you know, getting an amazing amount of, of opportunities just by really, uh, frankly, just sticking with what I do for so long. You know, you just kind of stay with it and eventually kind of people come around. Uh, I look at uh, Joe Lovano as an example. He's also from Ohio. He's from Cleveland. I'm from Cincinnati. And he's a little older than me. <laughs> but, you know, right around the time he was 40 or in his early 40s, all of a sudden it was the year of Joe Lovano. You know, everybody, he won every award, and there he was. And he was playing just as well when he was 30. But, you know, I think uh, sort of my time to get noticed and, uh, you know, in readers' polls and critics' polls. And, and uh, you know, I'm really grateful to have these opportunities. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, throughout your career, you've been involved in so many things. as a solo guy, trio, quintet. What I really am interested in, uh, just to have you elaborate a little bit on, is your pocket orchestra. What, what What's that all about? Well, it sort of existed in two incarnations. Um, I had an opportunity to do some uh, gigs in England, uh, and uh, the uh, agent who was booking me had booked me on a solo tour or two, and she said, you know, people would love to have you back, but you have to come back with something different. And I said, well, I know Norma Winston, and I've always loved Kenny Wheeler, but, you know, they had a trio with her then husband, John Taylor, on piano called Azimuth, and I don't want to do that. Uh, uh, so let's add a percussionist. So we added Paul Clarvis, no bass. And we did uh, an album and a couple of tours, and then I decided I wanted to try that here. So uh, I uh, enlisted uh, the wonderful Australian singer Joe Laurie, who's been touring with Sting for the last few years, and uh, my longtime trumpet player Ralph Alessi, and uh, young drummer percussionist Richie Barche, and we uh, and we uh, did some gigs and a live recording, and you know uh, I haven't really revisited that project you know since around 2009, but. You know, it may come up again. It's just, it was just sort of an interesting thing to do. Uh, I like playing duos. I like playing without bass. So it was just kind of a fun thing to do. And uh, a lot of my uh, songs have, uh, Norma Winston has written beautiful uh, lyrics. So there were some nice words for Joe to sing as well as doing uh, wordless vocal. Right on. You were the first person to play week-long engagements at the Village Vanguard. Is that kind of like being in, inducted into a very hallowed uh, jazz shrine in itself? Well, week-long engagement as a solo pianist. Uh, yeah, of course. And, you know, I, I have my picture on the wall there, and I'm uh, next to John Coltrane and below Mingus and Caddy uh, Corner to Bill Evans, Scott LaFell, and Paul Motion on the wall, and you know, that's, that's as good as a Grammy to me. Yeah. You know, I, 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 uh, I'm going to be there actually in January for two weeks, one week with a quintet, 
Uh, and then one solo week as a prelude to doing a solo album at the end of January, which will come out in the fall to, to mark my 60th birthday. Right on. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's really, it's really is nice to, to make history in a small way. Yeah, absolutely. So, who are your jazz heroes? Uh, Sonny Rollins, Ornette, Miles, Earl Hines, uh, Monk. Those are the ones that kind of come to mind. I mean, <clears throat> there's so many musicians I love and have listened to and, and I've taken inspiration from and you know, also some great Brazilian musicians and, you know, there's, there's a lot of music out there. Uh, but those people, you know, among many, uh, continue to inspire me. Talking about these heroes and all of the ones that you played with in jazz lore, from you know Joe Henderson, Art Farmer, Stan Getz, is there anybody that you would like to play with that you haven't played with yet? Sonny Rollins, uh, Wayne Shorter, Jack Dijonet. Those are the biggest names that, have, that come to mind. I mean, I've had a chance to play with so many people that have been on my kind of bucket list, those people. Uh, I'd actually like to play with James Taylor. I'd like to have dinner with Joni Mitchell. Cool. You know, these are things that would be great. Yeah, yeah. So, you got two Grammy nominations for floating. What do, you know, with, with what you're saying, the amount of work that you've been doing lately and how good you feel about things, how they're going, how does that feel to, to have two nominations for this album right now? Well, it's it's tremendous validation. I mean, the record did so well. Uh, top of sales charts, radio charts. Um, you know, that doesn't mean that it's gonna, it's a shoe-in for Grammy nominations, especially two of them. You know, it's, it's just, I think, you know, it's as much for me as it is, you know, for my bandmates, because, you know, it is a trio, and uh, I couldn't do what I do without those guys. Uh, you know, I've just got a, a band that I'm really thrilled with. And, uh, you know, um, they keep saying, oh, you know, a nomination is like a win, it's so great. And But, you know, this is my, these are my seventh and eighth nominations. So at this point, I'd like to kind of bring out the hardware. Right on. That's great. So at, at the uh, New England Conservatory, what do you try to teach your students? What do you want them to walk away from? from your teaching? Well, I want them to play the piano better. I work a lot with technique and sound. Um, I want them to be themselves uh, and find their own voice and their own personality in the music. Um, I want them to, you know, do whatever they do in a deep way. I'm not a particularly information-driven kind of teacher. You know, it's not like, okay, take this thing and learn it in 12 keys and come back next week. I deal more with uh, with concepts and with, you know, the art of, you know, really improvising and not just playing stuff you know how to play. So, uh, yeah, I, uh, I do enjoy the teaching, uh, although I will be leaving New England at the end of this academic year. I've just become just far too busy to fly up to Boston X number of times a semester. It just, uh, I'm luckily extremely busy with, uh, with projects, with the trio, with solo concerts and other special projects. So, uh, 
I'm, uh, you know, I'm going to have to let that go, but I, I still have some very gifted uh, private students in New York uh, as my schedule allows, and I think it will always be part of what I do because people gave a lot to me, and I feel like I need to give it back. So you had mentioned that you you didn't think you would see past 40. You're at 60 right now. Let's fast forward to 80, and you're sitting back, and you're having either a wine or a cup of coffee, and you look back on your contribution to jazz. What's going to make you the happiest? I think the fact that, you know, you know I was a pioneer uh, in terms of uh, coming out uh, in the jazz world about my sexual orientation and my HIV status, and Maybe I helped a lot of others to take some confidence and do that for themselves. I'm proud of that. I'm, I, I think I'm, you know, you know, I hate to say the word proud, but I think I'm proud that I've, you know, that I've created my own style and my own sound. And, you know, that's really why, you know, we do this so that, you know, we leave, we leave something of ourselves and uh, we're not just sort of another kind of journeyman you know, oh yeah, he plays good, you know. Right. I think I may have made some, you know, lasting contribution to jazz piano through my playing and through my teaching, and that's uh, that's a lot to be happy about. Absolutely. What's the last album you listened to before we talk today? Uh, an early Ahmad Jamal Trio album with Israel Crosby and Vernel Fournier. That was the last album I listened to. Right on. Was it on vinyl? Uh, no, it was a reissue on CD, but I had them all on vinyl. Cool. Very cool. Um, let me finish up with this here. If you had to define who you are in the length of a tweet, just a, a sentence or so, how would you define who you are? Human being, musician, jazz pianist, composer, gay, person living with HIV AIDS, like file folders on a desktop and a computer. Right on. That's the last question I have, sir. Thank you for your time. It was a, it was a wonderful pleasure speaking with you. You got a great story, and I, I truly love your music. It's beautiful. Well, thanks, thanks so much, and I uh, hope everybody out there has uh, lovely and joyous uh, holidays and continued good health. Thank you, Fred. Bye bye. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players from New York City, L.A., Kansas City, and spots all over America, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Fred for his time, graciousness, and insight into his life and his brilliant piano playing. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store or visit theneonjazz.blogspot.com for all things neon jazz. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.